This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Today, we listen back to some of our favorite interviews from the last couple of years that focused on history. It's safe to say the founding fathers would be very interested in what today's lawmakers are doing when it comes to health care. We know this because George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, and John Adams all care deeply about health and medicine. Perhaps it's because they lived at a rather sickly time. Malaria, yellow fever, and smallpox were rampant. University of Denver historian Jeannie Abrams writes about this in her book, Revolutionary Medicine, The Founding Fathers and Mothers in Sickness and in Health. She spoke with Ryan Warner in 2014. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here. The Founding Fathers and their families dealt with a lot of sickness, didn't they? Oh, it was extraordinary. Thomas Jefferson, for example, was predeceased by his young wife in her 20s and five of his six children hmm. and even several grandchildren. He, he once wrote um, a friend in Europe that I was born to lose everything that I love. And it was all to disease, which was common. The mortality rate was very, very high at the time. And Jefferson was kind of an extreme example. An extreme example. The, the infant mortality rate in particular was very high in, in the fledgling America. For children under two, as high as 40% in the early years. Um, as one historian later noted, maybe about a half century ago, um, it's amazing that America and the United States eventually thrived and that anyone survived those early years. You say medical care around this time was largely done at home, and it was often self-administered. What are some examples? Well, all of the founding mothers were quite knowledgeable about using herbs and common uh, medicines at the time to treat family members. Diseases that we would certainly go, um, for our first step would be to a physician, were first thought about informally. So even cancer, Benjamin Franklin advised his sister who had breast cancer about certain folk treatments that he had heard locally, including putting a wooden cone on the breast to cure the breast cancer. It obviously did nothing, You're but right. he said that he had heard um, cases where the people had been cured, but they were struggling. It was really an area of darkness in many ways in terms of medicine, and scientific medicine was really just coming into its own. Abigail Adams, Martha Washington, Dolly Madison all grew medicinal herbs in their gardens. So indeed did Thomas Jefferson. Probably um, one of his major hobbies was growing flowers and plants at Monticello. He probably grew as many as 50 different medicinal plants, used certain plants to treat stomach ailments, and some of them we use to this day. Like what? Well, aspirin um, yeah. that we use, the ubiquitous and very successful medication aspirin, um, is derived from the willow tree. Jefferson, for example, grew lavender in his garden, which was used to treat headaches. There were doctors in this era, but you write that only about 10% held medical degrees. 
Correct. There were no particular rules for becoming a doctor. Most, and there was no licensing at the time. Um, most physicians really got their training on the job, so to speak, as an apprentice. But only 10% actually went through formal university training. And that wasn't necessarily all bad. Many of those who had gone through formal university training had only really studied theoretical medicine and did not have much hands-on experience. So what did it mean to be a doctor? Well, some of it was experimental, but really the foundation for medical treatment um, in early America was almost universally bleeding. That was taking some bloodletting, blood, blood as we would know it today, taking some blood from the patient um, in an effort to adjust the body's humors. Humors. What are what are humors? So those were considered the four main aspects of the human body, black and yellow bile, blood, and phlegm. And that was what controlled the stability of the body. That there and needed if, to be some balance between correct, all of those they, uh, energies. And, or and disease was the result of an imbalance between those four humors. So bloodletting, for example, would be used to remove an excess of one of those humors. Huh. Even though you'd think that uh, bloodletting might release all four of them. But I guess the idea is that, magically, the bad one comes out. Yes. Really, um, a lot of those ideas seem counterintuitive to us today, but they were followed from the 4th century um, and the Greek um, physician Galen. Ultimately, George Washington, for example, died of what we would consider today quite a treatable disease, some type of strep throat. His epiglottis was swollen. He basically suffocated. But his death was really hurried on by the fact that he was bled three or four times that last day by his physicians. And his body probably also went into shock, which hastened his death. You describe this as taking out over half of Washington's circulating mm-hmm. blood, mm-hmm. over half his blood. Physicians really had just kind of a guesstimate about how much blood a person held in their body and what was safe. And it it seems counterintuitive to us, um, but they felt that they could regulate um, all diseases. Dr. Benjamin Rush, who was probably the leading American physician in the United States at that time. And who signed the Declaration of Independence. Yes, he was revolutionary um, in his uh, medical practice, I would say, in many areas and certainly in his politics. He felt that all diseases could be cured by bloodletting. Thomas Jefferson didn't buy into bloodletting, though, did he? He was circumspect. No. Thomas Jefferson was a very fervent believer in natural medicine. He really felt that the body had the capability to heal itself if only physicians would leave the people alone. Um, This may be apocryphal, but one of the stories circulating about him was that he used to say, if he saw two or three doctors in conversation, he'd look up in the sky to see if there were any vultures circling. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and University of Denver historian Jeannie Abrams is with us talking about her new book, Revolutionary Medicine, The Founding Fathers and Mothers in Sickness and in Health. Benjamin Franklin, whom you call the founding father of American medicine, helped start America's first medical school in Philadelphia, which was the capital of the country at the time. And Eugenie, I didn't know this, he also invented several medical devices, the flexible urinary catheter, 
and bifocals. Mm-hmm. Um, why was Benjamin Franklin so interested in health? I suppose there probably wasn't anything he wasn't interested in. That's, if you, that's you know. correct. And, you know, this whole group of founders were just extraordinarily brilliant people. They were so curious and they were all very much in, influenced by Enlightenment thought. And um, health and happiness and progress were very much interconnected in their minds. So that is one of the reasons I think that Franklin in particular was so interested in medicine. Medicine was one way that they felt they could really calculate the index of human progress. And of course, these are people very interested in human potential, in the potential of a new nation. Correct. And and that would be linked to the health of the populace. Correct. Little is known at this period about microbes. Mm -hmm. Um. And there's this general sense that bad air can cause illness. When Benjamin Franklin dies in 1790, it's thought that he fell ill after sleeping with his windows open. Correct. One of the other general theories along with the bloodletting was that miasmas, bad air, caused many, many illnesses. Um, For instance, I learned this while I was doing the research, malaria comes from the the Latin mal area, bad air. Oh, air. bad air. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which um, was very interesting to me. So that led to some very ludicrous ideas. Um, for example, during the terrible, notorious 1793 yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia, doctors were very divided on what they thought the causes um, of that outbreak were. Even Dr. Benjamin Rush, the leading physician, as I mentioned, felt that spoiled coffee on the wharves was probably the reason for the outbreak of the yellow fever. And what, that there was something emanating from Mm -hmm, the spoiled? Something emanating from the spoiled coffee. You know, I I think it's also um, really easy to read this book, Revolutionary Medicine, and go, oh, weren't they naive? But if someone writes a book about our medical care today, 50 years from now, they're likely to find some, you know, crazy notions that we hold. Yes, and I, and I think um, we very frequently read stories about medications or treatments today that were considered very successful only to find out that they were indeed unhelpful. We know how many drugs have caused um, very serious side effects. Right, you think um, about thalidomide un- or, mm-hmm. D, D, I suppose, DDT, not necessarily a medicine, but... Un- unintended consequences. And It's interesting to me that some of those treatments that we consider especially ludicrous, like bloodletting and leeches, um, actually have come back into their own in a certain way. Um, Leeches have been approved by the FDA over the last couple of years as a medical device. Um, They're actually helpful in regenerating blood vessels. And um, bloodletting on a limited basis has also um, helped people with high blood pressure. But while we're on the subject of, of modern medicine, let's talk about modern health care. So one of the most controversial aspects of the Affordable Care Act is the individual mandate, the requirement that people have health insurance or pay a fine. In 1798, President John Adams signs into law a health care mandate of his own, although more limited in its scope. What was it? It was the Siemens Act of 1798, which actually um, established the marine hospitals. It was limited in the sense that it was aimed at seamen um, 
coming back from ships, providing them with temporary health care if they became ill. It obviously had um, an economic underpinning. Illness not only devastated families and communities, it affected the economy. How was this law received, and, and why did you choose to focus on it, the, the Siemens Act? Well, I, it, it's important in that I would say it's, it reflects the first federal um, formal intervention into health care. I don't want to blow it out of proportion, but I think um, the founders recognized early on that government had a responsibility, a certain level of responsibility to ensure the health of their citizenry. Thank you for being with us. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for hosting me. University of Denver historian Jeannie Abrams is the author of Revolutionary Medicine, The Founding Fathers and Mothers in Sickness and in Health. She spoke with Ryan Warner back in 2014. When we return, the story of the soldiers on skis who helped win World War II. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Extreme skier Chris Anthony went to high school about 30 minutes from Camp Hale, a former training facility for the Army's 10th Mountain Division. But Anthony didn't fully understand the significance of what took place there until later in life. Living in the Vale Valley in Colorado, you hear about this 10th Mountain Division. You see these tributes all over the statues. And it just made me that much more intrigued to find out who they are and the personalities of each and every one of them. That's from the documentary Climb to Glory. The men of the 10th Mountain Division were soldiers on skis who helped win World War II. And Camp Hale is where many of them got their ski legs. After the war, these veterans helped pioneer the ski industry. In this film, Anthony and some of his friends tried on the clunky equipment the soldiers wore back then and attempted to ski. Let's just say it was awkward. Holy cow. I mean, if you get a little bit forward, you're gone. If you get just a tiny bit back, you're gone. And then the skis just don't want to turn. How did they do it? I can't believe it. Much, much respect for these guys. Anthony has shown the film in classrooms across the state. Let's listen back to his conversation with Ryan Warner in January 2015. Welcome to the program. Thank you. It's great to be here. What about these men fascinated you so much and that you're so eager to share with young people? I was in the Vale Valley growing up, and I, you know, did not know exactly their story. I wandered into the Colorado Ski and Snowboard Museum. I saw the displays, and at that time, there was one of the uh, the men himself doing a presentation, Sandy Treat. And it's just important to know about where we came from and a little bit of our history. These men faced many challenges. They didn't have groomed slopes. It was deep snow. And they carried about 90-pound backpacks while navigating this uh, rough terrain. In the film, the 10th Mountain Division's Hugh Evans talks about training in these brutal conditions. I thought they were going to kill us all off. Sleeping out in temperatures down to 30 below zero without a tent. If you put up a tent, the tents we had, you perspire and it freezes on the tent. and You bump the tent and it all goes down your neck. So we learned to sleep out without tents. We slept on top of our skis. 
we learned the tricks of the trade to survive. Really, it was a survival exercise. The notion that it's more comfortable to sleep without a tent is a pretty crazy notion. Well, these guys were creating a new way to survive, a new way to be outside, be combat ready. So, And this was obviously to simulate the Alps. You know? Yes. Um, a lot of the war, of course, being fought in Europe and in the mountainous terrain. Actually, we knew that we were going to be pulled into the war at some point or another, but we lacked a military division proficient in the mountains. And they were constantly um, adapting and creating new things. I, I heard lots of the guys talk about all the new snow vehicles that the army kept coming up with. And I don't want to say that war is a wonderful thing at all, because it certainly isn't. But one thing it does make happen with cultures and societies is they have to evolve really fast. In fact, the boots that they have are part ski boots, part snowshoe boots, part cross-country boots. And you have to ski, as we mentioned, in these. You, you try this for yourself. They need to have their equipment as light as possible back then and ready not only to ski on, but also climb mountains and walk up mountains on their skis. So there's a lot of adaptation that need to take place. And the boots, although what we would feel about them now were horrible, (laughs) (laughs) they were uh, actually very state-of-the-art back then. I loved how much archival footage is in this film. Let's just hear a clip. It's like an old instructional ski film or something. Well, that's enough for now. Better turn in and get a good night's rest. Tomorrow morning, the ski instructor will start your actual ski lessons. And good luck to you. How did you track down all this old film? When I came up with the idea that we were going to do this film, I kind of had a very uh, rudimentary way of, of doing it. I thought, you know, we'll go out, myself and the two other athletes, the two other athletes being descendants of actual men in the 10th Mountain Division. And who are in this film with you. We're in in the film, Scott Kennett and Tony Seibert. Tony Seibert being the grandson of Pete Seibert, one of the co-founders of Vail. But I thought, we'll go out, we'll get in the gear, and we'll make fun of ourselves and tell their story with some flashbacks and some photos and things that were at the museum. Of course, Warren Miller Entertainment took it to an entirely new level. This is the the producer. Yes. I I partnered up with uh, Warren Miller Entertainment and also Colorado Ski and Snowboard Museum. Along with that, we also were able to get one of Clint Eastwood's former editors who was very good at telling wartime period type documentaries. And he knew how to go about really going into the uh, Library of Congress and the Denver Public Library. It took five years to make this project happen. You are listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with uh, skier Chris Anthony, who's now also a film star, about his documentary. The stars, really, of it are the veterans of the 10th Mountain Division. This documentary is called Climb to Glory. And I want to note that one of the soldiers that appears in the film uh, is Earl Clark, who passed away just before the new year. Tell me a story from Earl Clark that really stuck with you. He talked about the T-bar up um, at Ski Cooper, which was built as a training facility for the men of the 10th right outside of Camp Hale. This is near Leadville. Right near Leadville. And uh, at the time, it was the longest surface lift in the world created by the Army Corps engineers. But Earl uh, stood, I don't even know, below five feet. And some of the troop was, you know, over six, three. And there was only two sizes in skis. So all of them were too 
tall for Earl. <laughs> and he would get on this T-bar with the taller guys. And, you know, if, if you've ever ridden a T-bar, you have to be on the T-bar with somebody the same size. Most of the guys were bigger than Earl. So it was always awkward for him riding up the T-bar. He also joked a lot about the backpack that they had to carry around. It was 90 pounds. And there's a probably weighed as much it. as he did. And it weighed, yeah, he talked about, you know, he was, it, the backpack weighed as much as he did. And when he would flip over on his skis, he was like a turtle upside down. <laughs> he was a character. Well, in 1944, the 10th Mountain Division found itself in the Alpini Mountains of Italy. Uh, it was the first time uh, many of them had ever been in combat, and many of them did not come back from the war. I did not realize the scope of the casualties the 10th Mountain Division suffered. They suffered the largest amount of casualties in the shortest period of time. They went into the war late. They took over several fronts that basically other divisions of the Army were not able to do. And uh, these guys were fit. They were in shape. And they attacked the Germans from sides of the mountains that nobody would ever suspect anybody would want to approach them from. So their story actually in combat, though short, was very impactful. Also impactful was, uh, well, the, the mark they left uh, when they returned to Colorado, some of them, and pioneered the state's ski industry. Uh, this is from the film. Tenth Mountain really changed nothing less than the landscape of skiing. Pre-World War II, the skiing industry was very elite, and it was uh, very upper class. It, it was almost a, a sport of royalty. And there was a democratizing of skiing after this. Uh, Vail is born uh, because of one of the uh, alumni of the 10th Mountain Division. Just talk a bit about their place in Colorado. Uh, their impact was significant uh, in building the ski areas. Even if they didn't build things, they were here working. You know, guys that were running chairlifts or opening bars, working the ski shops, doing anything to stay connected with the Colorado culture and the mountains. What also came out of it was the Army, of course, produced over a couple hundred thousand pairs of these skis that were built for Camp Hale and Trayana. All of a sudden, the war was over. What do you do with them? So all that equipment, all of it was released into the public at really cheap prices. So it really did make all of a sudden the sport more approachable. Interesting. And of course, you also have a growing middle class at this point that can start to take ski vacations. Uh, and that notion is arising at the same time. Uh, how was it to try on that old equipment as a very skilled skier? It was humbling, to say the least. Um, I knew it was going to be difficult, but I didn't realize how difficult. Um, I'm amazed you could still find this stuff. Uh, but... it, well, we, we found it. There were some collectors. Unfortunately, we broke a pair of skis, which didn't go over very well. But you look at the film of what they're doing and what we were trying to do, it's, it, it makes us look ridiculous. Right, but... because you had the archival footage to see how you do it artfully. Yes. And then you tried it yourself. And actually, you know, they were carrying around the backpacks, you know, 90 pound backpacks. We had backpacks, but we had pillows in them. So we didn't even deal with the weight that these guys were dealing with. We did film in uh, late April, and the snow was not amazing. So I can sort of write up in a little bit of excuse that uh, we were in some slushy conditions that was very sticky. But regardless, what these guys were able to accomplish on those skis, and it, you know, is pretty 
humbling to us. And that's part of the humor of the story. And that's part of what we brought to this story that's unique over a lot of the other great films that have been made about these guys. We really wanted to make something that connected to the youth. And And let's talk about the youth just a little bit, because you've launched an outreach tour and you hope to show Climb to Glory to about 10,000 grade school students through these efforts. How are kids reacting? So I've been doing these school programs for 16 years. The creation of Climb to Glory, the documentary, allowed me to have a material to walk into the classroom with that both had an academic presence as well as a humor presence as well as something that the kids would be inspired about. I was a little nervous whether it would be too much for them or and they would drag on. But so far, I've hit about 7,000 kids, and the schools are embracing it. The kids are embracing it. There's so many teachable moments in showing this documentary, not just about the skiing, but the Colorado history, the world history. Extreme skier Chris Anthony talking with Ryan Warner in January of 2015. The film is called Climb to Glory, the Legacy of the 10th Mountain Division. It's available at the Colorado Ski and Snowboard Museum in Vail. We're revisiting some of our favorite Colorado Matters interviews about history on today's show. Up next, let's visit the Lost Restaurants of Denver. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Now for some of Denver's history, or more specifically, Denver's restaurant history. There used to be a restaurant near the state capitol where Marlon Brando was turned away because he wasn't dressed appropriately. There was a ringside lounge run by an ex-boxer named Joe Awful Coffee. And the old Denver dry goods department store had a tea room where ladies in Chanel suits dined on stuffed tomatoes. They're among the lost restaurants of Denver, which is the title of a book from husband and wife Bob and Kristen Otteby. They spoke with Ryan Warner late last year. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ryan. Thank you. Uh, Take us to that Denver dry goods tea room, Bob, on 16th Street. Uh, You were there before it closed in 87. What was it like? Uh, That's odd. (laughs) Strange you would mention that. Yeah, it was um, quite the elegant place. Um, In fact, I discovered this last night accidentally that in the early 1960s, the Denver Dry Good Tea Room served 500,000 meals a year. In 1960, there was only 497,000 people in Denver, Colorado. Wow, they did mean business. Yeah, that that chicken ala king went down really well. So even towards the end there in the in the late 80s, it was a very refined um, silverware, linen tablecloths kind of place that you don't see nowadays. It's just they just don't exist. Uh, given that it did such good business, one wonders why it closed in 87. I believe it goes back to that uh, the bugaboo of capitalism uh, one corporation swallows up another corporation, and uh, that's what happened with the Denver Dry Goods. It's now part of history. Right. It went and, the way of the of the department store. Yeah, in many and, ways. yeah and times were changing. Um, women who lunch, the, it's a different brand these days. Um, you know, the Chanel suit wearers of the 60s were women who didn't necessarily work every day. So as women are working, we're not going out for lunch. As much. So much. And not that kind of lunch. And not that kind of lunch. Yeah. Yeah. One of the first restaurants in Denver came in the 1800s, and it was a French restaurant. Yes. That was Fred Sharpio's uh, restaurant. 
and um, he was from France. He actually died in France. Uh, after coming to Denver, he made four trips uh, back to France to purchase wine. So here we are, a mining camp, and we have uh, we <laughs> have a French a restaurant seller, yeah. with a good cellar. Yeah, <laughs> this yeah. is on Blake Street. In downtown, I think. Yes, yes, I believe so. Sharpio's. Sharpio. Uh, His brother opened an oyster uh, oyster house kind of across the street from him. So they were in competition for a while, Um, which tells us, uh, even though we don't have a menu from Fred Sharpio's restaurant, it it tells us that he had a different menu from his brother. Lewis had a different menu. So Lewis is focusing on the oysters and... Other things, Fred is doing something else. Other, otherwise, they wouldn't stay in business. A family so. feud. One, <laughs> one wonders, though, how oysters made it fresh to Denver then. Oysters came a couple different ways. They came canned. Oysters being a very fragile food are one of the first to be commercially canned and shipped everywhere. Uh, and that's as early as the 1840s. Oh. There's records of oysters crossing the Santa Fe Trail. Uh, there's oysters that come up the Missouri River. There's oysters that cross on other ways. Um, they were also shipped in ice, and they were shipped in, in seawater. So they could be shipped fresh as well. These restaurants seem to be a lens to understanding the city's really diversity over the decades. Did you discover that in your research? Absolutely. We um, we made a kind of a point to get an understanding of our city's different ethnic groups through the restaurants. And in fact, there's some cases throughout our city's history where uh, groups mingle, like the Japanese and the African-Americans over by Welton and Larimer. Uh, we found a menu where um, there was a Chinese restaurant that was selling uh, pig's feet. <laughs> on 28th and Welton, and you use cafe. And it, it's it's fascinating that the introduction of chili parlors in the city wasn't Mexicans or Mexican-Americans, as you might assume. It was Greeks. So um, I, I don't know the concept of a chili parlor. Well, I'm glad you asked. Yeah, and <laughs> the, the, they're somewhat prominent in the book. Yes. Yeah. Um, it, it was in the days before fast food, McDonald's, Wendy's, whatever, this was a place where a working person could go in, and mostly if the if the Denver Dry Goods tea rooms were, were for the ladies, chili parlors were for the working class men. Okay, a nickel would get you a bowl of what some folks would call hellfire stew, and uh, beans, meat, uh, crackers, and you whoop it down and off you go. Our research found that there was a restaurant tour that had a um, Denver take on chili called Liverling which they combined the chili beans and the meat with actual with awful. Liver. Yeah, liver. yeah, with yeah, with awful, with, with, with kidneys and livers and stuff like that. So it really had an Irish flair, yes. I guess, yes. because yes. you also write about a place called Murphy's yes. <laughs> Chili Parlor. Yes. Right. Tr- do you trust chilies if it comes from Murphy's? I don't know. At, <laughs> at, at number five, Broadway. And I guess an old ad for the place says, all of our cooking done by women. Yes. Oh, yes. Uh, of Isn't such that a, sweet? Such an era. I'm not sure about sweet. <laughs> um, we we did find any number of photographs where all of the cooks are men, and and if you go through the city directories in the eight, 1870s to really the turn of the century, uh, anyone who's listed as a cook is generally a man, and so the the job of cook in a restaurant isn't necessarily a woman's. 
And think about it. You know, even in modern times, uh, if you want to be a French chef and you go to France to study, you're going to have a really hard time if you're a woman. That's a man's job in in France. Hmm. So even even today, that's a difficult business to break into. It's changing. Um, there are more and more women who are celebrity chefs, but that's something that's relatively modern. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Bob and Kristen Audeby about their book, Lost Restaurants of Denver. So we uh, also asked our listeners on Facebook for their restaurant memories. Tanya Floyd Ellis recalled Gonzalo's in Fort Collins. Mickey Santa Stephen remembered Pagliacci's in Denver. With the big neon clown that's you could a good see one. from yeah. the highway. Yeah. I think that's a good one. It had like Naga Hyde booths for days. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yes it did. And the most amazing um, soups. Minestrone soup. Ministering soup. We, we missed the minestrone soup. Yeah. It was really good. And it so. was a recent uh, closure, wasn't yes. it? Yes, it is. And yes. evidently it's now an apartment building with the sign is in the foyer is our understanding. So oh, they see. kept at least that element of the of the old restaurant. This is in Denver's kind of low-high neighborhood. The low-high, yeah. Right. Uh, not far from the highway. On Colfax, across the street from the state capitol, there was a place called Quorum. <laughs> it's a great name for yeah. a place that close to the state capitol. Right. Tell us about Quorum. Uh, Pierre Wolf, who's still with us, is in his 90s. He was the uh, the dean of Denver's uh, gourmet restaurateurs in the 50s, 60s, 70s, into the 80s. Um, place was very swank. It was... It, it, recalls much like the the tea room in its own way a different time in dining when when you could take three hours from appetizer to coffee and or aperitif uh, i want that life <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we, we don't put that importance on on going out for dinner with dining yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah that's exactly right and, and and mr wolf himself would like to brag that he did over ten thousand steak dianes at the quorum where he would come to your table and with the ceremony and everything else, prepare your meal right there at your table. And just another happy memory from a night out at the quorum. My father, who went to Colorado College more years than, you know, ago than he would probably want to mention, uh, loved a joint called the Ringside Lounge. And it was oh, yes. owned by Joe Awful Coffee. Yes. Tell me about this. Well, his coffee wasn't awful. That was his boxing nickname. Uh, and that's how you felt after he punched you. And so that's how he got awful. the name Awful. So it wasn't Awful Coffee. <laughs> yeah. So if you're familiar like with Jack Dempsey's place in New York City in Manhattan. Or Eddie Bowen. Or Eddie Bowen, yeah, here yeah. in Denver, that that there was a – it was not necessarily a sports bar, but the restaurant was very sports-themed. So anybody that was coming in town to fight or somebody that uh, Mr. Coffee knew from his days in the ring – they would come there and, and have a meal. And it was one of these places, too, that was open 24 hours a day, which is also a very different thing about Denver restaurants 70 years ago than from now. Meaning that they were open around the clock more often. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. And this was in, was that Larimer Square, Joe Awful Coffee? Uh, around there, yes. Yeah. 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 What's the craziest place you came across? Maybe we've already talked about it. Who knows? But... I, you know, I don't know that, that we really had a craziest, but there's some great gimmicks out there. Um, you know, there was a numerologist who sat in the lobby at the Blue Parrot downtown so you could have your numbers done uh, before dinner, after dinner. And that was kind of a Spanish-themed dining room. Kind of, and, yes, there was a parrot that was the 
compare, so to speak. Um, I'm thinking she's saying, I, and your numbers are revealing you're going to get food poisoning. You're, <laughs> you're, you're, oh, go, you're going to yeah. pay a 20% tip. To, right. that's, <laughs> that, that's in, that's in, the, that's yeah. in the future. <laughs> so it's, there are all sorts of little gimmicks like that. I think the 94th Aero Squadron, I, that's probably one of Bob's favorite yeah. Bob, tell childhood us memories. Um, 94th Aero Squadron was in the vicinity of the old Stapleton Airport. Yeah, it was a great place to go as I did on my ninth birthday, to watch the planes land, and you could listen on headsets to the planes land. The decor, however, looking back on it, was really bizarre. It's a World War I trench. And so the, the restaurant was themed to be like uh, 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 an air squadron from the First World War. Kristen, very quickly before we go, just name one you love to go into that's a throwback. I, oh. I love going into Patsy's. Patsy's, 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 the Patsy's, Italian the place. Italian the Italian place. place. Yes. Handmade pasta. Yeah. This is in Lohi. Um, yeah. In North Denver. It, it, the Necco wafers on the bar are the same as they were 70 years ago. The, the family still has a piece of it, the Cito's from the original people that yeah. ran the place years yeah. ago. So it's, an, it's a real throwback and a, and a real gem in this town. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. Bob and Kristen Ottaby are the authors of Lost Restaurants of Denver. They spoke with Ryan Warner. Coming up, the story of blacklisted Hollywood screenwriter Dalton Trumbo. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Grand Junction was the childhood home of a fascinating Hollywood figure. Dalton Trumbo was the screenwriter behind Oscar-winning films like Spartacus and Roman Holiday, in which Audrey Hepburn plays a princess who escapes the royal life and gets a rare taste of freedom. I'd like to do just whatever I like the whole day long. Things like having your hair cut, eating gelato. Yes, and I'd... I like to sit at a sidewalk cafe and look in shop windows, walk in the rain. But at the height of his career in 1947, Dalton Trumbo was blacklisted for his ties to the Communist Party. It forced him to write screenplays under pseudonyms and from Mexico for a couple of years. Here's his daughter, Mitzi. We had a lot of secrets. He was always writing. He wrote screenplays for like one-tenth of what he would have made, and he never saw his name on the screen. So it was kind of an intense period. Now his name is absolutely on the screen. The feature film Trumbo, starring Brian Cranston, came out late last year. Now Cranston, whom Mitzi says is stunning as her father, has been nominated for an Oscar for Best Actor in a Leading Role. When the movie debuted, Ryan Warner spoke with Mary Hillsback, who helps lead the film program at the University of Wisconsin, where some of Trumbo's papers are kept. Mary, welcome to the program. Thank you. Clue us in on how big a figure Dalton Trumbo was in Hollywood. Well, Dalton Trumbo, at at the time that he was blacklisted, was the highest paid screenwriter in Hollywood. He was under contract at MGM, which at the time was the biggest, if not one of the biggest studios in Hollywood. And he was being paid $75,000 a script or $3,000 a week. And the equivalent of that today would be astronomical, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. He also won, um, I think, the National Book Award for an anti-war novel called Johnny Got His Gun. Yeah, Johnny Got His Gun was published in 1939. Uh, He won the Book Award in 1940. And Trumbo, I think, 
really wanted to be a novelist. I don't think he ever really imagined himself being a screenwriter. Uh, he wanted to be a novelist. And Johnny Got His Gun was certainly his most successful novel. And he seems to have succeeded big in both regards. Uh, Trumbo went to Grand Junction High School, then to CU Boulder for a time. His first published novel was called Eclipse, and it wasn't very well received in Grand Junction. It was based on a town modeled after it called Shale City. What, what did people find objectionable about it? Well, he, he based the characters on real people in Grand Junction, and it was not the most flattering portrayal of of the town and of the people. Uh, Trumbo, the main, the main character in the book, uh, John Abbott, was based on a real person named W.J. Moyer in Grand Junction. But Trumbo would later say that that person was really representative of his father. Uh, the main character is someone who is successful in town. He's uh, a well-regarded citizen. But then when he falls on hard times, everyone abandons him. And that was similar to what happened to Trumbo's father. They were never a wealthy family, but his father was uh, a respected figure in town. And they left Grand Junction in 1924 after his father had been fired from his job as a shoe clerk at a shoe store. So Trumbo carried some bitterness about uh, how he felt his family had been treated in Grand Junction. And that kind of came through in the novel. And so people didn't, people weren't very happy about it. No. And for a long time, Eclipse was, was um, out of print. And I think it was actually brought back into print only recently. Um, so in the 1940s, Dalton Trumbo does join the Communist Party. And this eventually landed him on the blacklist. Remind mm-hmm. us, what did, what did that mean, to be on the blacklist? Well, to be on the blacklist meant you couldn't work in Hollywood or television. Uh, after Trumbo was a member of the Hollywood Ten, there were ten uh, figures, screenwriters and, and directors, who refused to answer questions before the House Un-American Activity Committee in 1947 and were subsequently charged with contempt of Congress. And after uh, they were charged with contempt of Congress, a group of Hollywood executives came out with what was called the Waldorf Statement, which said they were no longer going to employ not only any of the 10, um, but anyone who had been a member of the Communist Party, anyone who was a member of a group that wanted to overthrow the the government. So if you were on the blacklist, that meant you lost your means of supporting yourself, of making money. You talk about him being in contempt of Congress. Let's hear him before the House Un-American Activities Committee. They ask him if uh, he was a member of the Screenwriters Guild. And Dalton Trumbo tries to introduce evidence um, in the form of 20 of his screenplays, rather than answering just yes or no. Uh, let's listen. In order to conduct this hearing in an orderly fashion, it is necessary that you be responsive to the question without making a speech in response to each question. I understand, Mr. Strickland. However, your job is to ask the questions and mine to answer them. I shall answer yes or no if I please to answer. I shall answer in my own words. Very many questions can be answered yes or no 
only by a moron or a slave. The chair, the, the chair agrees with, the, with, with your point that you need not answer the questions yes or no, that you, you should an, but you should answer the question. Thank you, sir. Hmm. It is so interesting to me that someone who made his living writing and speaking freely uh, winds up being um, really curtailed in that effort because this is fundamentally a, a free speech question, isn't it? It is. And that was one of their arguments. They said that they had, you know, their First Amendment rights, the freedom to speech, freedom of speech, as well as uh, freedom to join any political parties or organizations. Uh, They were they were fighting for their First Amendment rights. He staged a sort of silent rebellion after he was blacklisted um, because Dalton Trumbo kept writing movies, uh, even winning an Oscar for a film called The Brave One. Uh, How did he pull that off? Well, there were two ways that you could work on the black market. And this was true not only for Trumbo, but for, for many other blacklisted screenwriters. You could either find another screenwriter who was in good standing, who was not under suspicion, and use them as a front. So you would write a screenplay and hand it off to them. They would put their name on it and sell it, and then you would split the proceeds. Uh, This worked for him for a while, but uh, then many screenwriters who worked as fronts were later blacklisted themselves. and another round of hearings uh, in front of HUAC in 1951. So the other way they could work on the blacklist was to come up with aliases or pseudonyms. And Trumbo had a number of uh, aliases. Uh, he used the name Sam Jackson when he worked on Spartacus. But uh, his most famous alias was Robert Rich, which is the name he used when he wrote The Brave One in 1956. Hmm. Have any of those films been altered after the fact to put his name on them? Yeah, it it took a while, though. Uh, It wasn't until the 1990s when the Academy started working to right some of the wrongs during the blacklisted era and started restoring credits to blacklisted writers uh, for the films they wrote during the 1950s. So, for instance, uh, Trumbo's name was finally credited, uh, finally appeared on Roman Holiday in 1993, uh, which is when his family also received the Oscar uh, that he won for writing that film. Hmm. He did spend some time in prison, I think, like about 11 months? Yes, he did, uh, from June 1950 to, I think, April of 1951. And specifically, what was that for? And, And was he writing during that time? Well, he went to prison because of the contempt of Congress charge. Got it. Uh, they, they did spend uh, a, a number of years from 1947 to 1950 appealing, uh, appealing that sentence unsuccessfully, of course. Um, but when he went to prison, he thought it would be an opportunity where he could write another novel or write a play. But he very quickly realized it, prison wasn't conducive to to working on a novel or a play. <laughs> you think? Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, he spent his time. He wrote a lot of letters for, for other inmates, um, guys who didn't know how to write or who weren't very good writers. 
So he wrote letters for them to their families, um, to their lawyers, uh, and he spent a lot of time reading. He had a tremendous list of magazines and newspapers that he had forwarded uh, to the prison in Kentucky for, for him to read while he was there. Why do you think this is an important story to tell? And again, one that's being told in this new film, Trumbo, with Brian Cranston. Well, I think it's important uh, because it could happen again. You know, you have people in the past, just the past few years, like Michelle Bachman saying members of Congress should be investigated to see whether they're American enough. Um, you know, people think, well, this this can't happen again, but it, it could very easily happen again. Uh, and it's important to know this story. As you have studied the life of Dalton Trumbo, um, have you come to, to like him, to think he's a likable figure? How would you how would you describe him personally? He's a complicated character. He could be uh, very cranky, very demanding and assertive, um, a bit of a bully on occasions. But he could also be very generous, very warm, very loving, very humorous. Uh, could be He could be a very good friend. So he's a complicated character and one that it's, it's very easy to become fascinated by. Uh, you don't have to agree with his politics. Or, or like any of his films, but uh, he's definitely an interesting character. Ryan Warner speaking with Mary Hillsbeck of the Wisconsin Center for Film and Theater Research. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is CPR's Colorado Matters.